0: Hey, how are you? Did you say you had some books? You had a local historian bring you some kind of books or something about the history of
2: yeah, the let me, past? Uh, let me show you. These are the books right here. All this. Some are school, some are city.
0: What does this have? What books are these? That's, all,
2: that's all school stuff. All old. It goes all the way back. It's all uh, alumni association Oh,
0: really? Yeah. So 31, we don't know if there's... I'm sure it's labeled. I can look and see. Yeah, they're all labeled. I'm back at the Aransas Past Progress newspaper, and I'm asking publisher John Bowers about some more resources he might have, like books on local history. Zima come in here and look at this stuff?
2: Yeah, they did. What was happening to a lot of this stuff is, circa 1912, Is people were stealing out of the library so the library gave it to to us. I mean, you're welcome to look through all those books you want to and see if there's anything. I don't know what you're looking for.
0: Remember that guy I told you about, Bill Strain, who she babysat him and he kind of became obsessed with the case. He and his son came down here about 30 years ago and that's when you will had all the newspapers and they just sat here for hours. He felt like the progress was really helpful. These articles and books at the Aransas Pass Progress about Dorothy serve as a reminder of her death. The details of Dorothy Simon's murder in Aransas Pass, Texas, were upsetting to read about. Dorothy and her killer struggled. There were deep contusions on her neck. Clearly, she had fought back. When he was finally able to get control of her, He put his hands around her neck and strangled her in the water. He dragged her body over the seawall. He dug a shallow grave and rolled her into it, then covered her up and disappeared into the night. Rumors and gossip in a small town become confused with facts. Whispers of alcohol and smoking and sex framed Dorothy Simons as a woman with few morals, which devastated her family. Newton Yarbury was the prime suspect, and now he was preparing for his murder trial. His family accused Tom Connor of being the last person to see Dorothy alive. The prosecutor had little physical evidence, aside from some footprints in the sand and potential signs of a struggle on Newton. Those scratches on his back might have been useful today. A medical examiner could have collected DNA from under Dorothy's fingernails for comparison. But in 1931, the DA had to work with what he had, witnesses, alibis, and Newton's reputation. Hadn't the Simons family been through enough? Especially Agnes. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of a child's violent death on a parent. There's been a lot of research on that. You all know that I'm a mother, and this story was hard for me. This kind of loss for a parent can trigger everything from severe depression and anxiety to physical pain and an increased risk of suicide. Marriages end because of sudden deaths in the family, like the murder of a child, and it will absolutely change people. Dorothy's death really changed Howard and Agnes Simons in a very sad way. I keep hinting at what I call the trickle-down effect of this case. It's really an expansive look at how Dorothy's horrific murder damaged many people, entire families, actually. It didn't seem like it was going to have that far of a reach at the time. Once I connect all the dots, this theory will come together. We're just not quite there yet. We've talked a lot about how Bill Strain's lifelong obsession with Dorothy's death fueled his decades-long effort to get to the truth. This excerpt from his blog perfectly sums up a major focal point in this episode, and it hints at a disturbing turn Dorothy's story is about to take. Bill wrote, Aransas Pass was a small, tough little town. The Great Depression was a 10-year, tough time to live, and it was not Dorothy's lot to make it through. Of all the trials in the county, I don't know of another one that was as fragmented and unpredictable as the trial of Newton-Yarbury. I agree, his trial was complicated and frustrating and traumatizing for just about everyone, but especially for the Simons. And now we'll find out why. On August 10th, 1931, Newton was officially indicted for Dorothy's murder. The district attorney spent the next two months preparing his case. Autumn often feels crisp and cool. It's sweater weather in most states, not in Texas. October in Texas is often close to 100 degrees. The fall is hot and sweaty, and old courthouses without air conditioning are miserable. It's a terrible time for a trial in Texas. Nonetheless, on Tuesday, October 6, 1931, testimony began in Newton Yarbury's murder trial. It had been more than two months since Dorothy's body was discovered in that grave by the Bay. Of course, reporters filled the courtroom in Stinton. They jotted down notes on their pads and scrambled to interview the prosecutor and the defense, trying to sort out each side's strategy. The papers reported that the state would ask for the death penalty if Newton were found guilty. That would mean that he would die in the electric chair. But the defense seemed confident. Remember that the jury was all male. Newton had no real criminal record. The physical evidence wasn't conclusive. The Yarburys had hired attorneys who knew how to trip up witnesses on the stand and Newton's attorneys plan to dismantle the prosecution's case against their client. Defense attorney David Shepard says money almost always helps when you're on trial.
2: I think in any situation, if you can hire the best lawyers around, that gives you a distinct advantage, no question. I think the social dynamics are the reverse of what you're saying about a small town, though. I grew up in a small town, and small towns can have the wealthy families be resented by the rest of the community depending on what they're
0: like and the Yarburys were well-liked in Aranza's Pass. But what if not everyone agreed?
2: If they're viewed by the rest of the community as too proud, too controlling, too overbearing, then there can be a lot of resentment and that can really play against them. I guess jurors could say they're afraid of repercussions if they were to find someone from a rich family guilty, but it's awfully easy for them to just carry those resentments into that jury box and say, we're going to get even here. I finally got my chance to get a little blowback on these people that I've resented and pushed me around for years.
0: A throng of gawkers stood outside the courthouse in Stinton, all waiting to sit in the galley of the biggest trial in the county in years. When the judge started the proceedings, the courtroom grew silent. The judge ordered the prosecutor and the defense attorneys to call out the names of their witnesses. The DA had 59 witnesses, and the defense had 88. That's a long list, even for a murder trial. But that's how important this trial was to the area. The DA and the defense attorneys had to do everything they could to win. Newton Yarberry sat at the defense table next to his attorneys. Reporters described him as slim and sallow, which was not a compliment. Newton reached into his pocket and pulled out a little box. He struck a match, lit his cigar, and quickly puffed on it as he listened to the judge. The media noted that he seemed a little fidgety at times, but of course he was. Who wouldn't be fidgety? Newton had been on the defense since he was taken to jail two months earlier. He refused to talk with the sheriff then, and he hadn't talked to him since. Women sat shoulder to shoulder gripping their purses. Men sat cross-legged with their hats in their laps. High school girls gazed at the handsome defendant. What an odd scene. There were hundreds of people waving paper fans and hats to keep cool, even though the windows of the courthouse were open. A group of enterprising ladies from a nearby church even set up a booth in the courthouse basement to sell coffee and cakes. The trial began with a bit of drama when the district attorney called Tom Connor to the stand, the man who was seen with Dorothy in downtown Aransas Pass on the night she disappeared. Tom was likely the most interesting witness on the DA's list, and here he was on the stand on the very first day of the trial. The prosecutor wanted to establish quickly that Tom was not a viable suspect. Before Tom, there had been two other witnesses. A woman at Dorothy's church reported that she arrived for choir practice that night at 7 and stayed for an hour. Dorothy's friend, Mrs. Fowler, testified next that Dorothy arrived at her house shortly after 8 p.m., Dorothy told her that Tom Connor would be there soon to walk her downtown as a favorite, just to make sure she got there safely. When Tom took the stand, he described to the jury what happened that hot night, July 30th, when he met Dorothy. Tom went to Mrs. Fowler's home to pick up Dorothy and escort her downtown. As they walked, Tom asked Dorothy why she was going there She replied that she was going to ask Newton to take her swimming. Tom testified that he walked Dorothy to the post office and watched her go inside. And then he left and never saw her again. But Tom said he never saw Newton either. It seemed like a simple story. Tom did a friend a favor, dropped her off, and then she vanished. He insisted that he had nothing to do with her murder. And that was the end of the first day of testimony. The state was using Tom Connor to make a very important point. Newton saw Tom and Dorothy together, and he became jealous. He confronted her when they reached the bay, they argued, and he killed her. He tossed her things into the bay and quickly buried her in a shallow grave. Yes, for this theory to work, Newton would have needed to think quickly, but self-preservation is an excellent motivator. And adrenaline can make you move fast. The state's theory makes a lot of sense to me if Newton were guilty. Let's wait and see. The next morning, Tom walked back to the witness chair. It was the defense's turn to question him now. Yesterday had gone well for Tom, but today, as Newton's defense attorney rose from his seat, it became clear quite quickly... That Tom Connor was about to have a very uncomfortable time on the stand. Newton Yarbury's attorney, Mr. Nelson, had sat by quietly as the state's attorney, Gus Gale, asked Tom Connor about the night Dorothy died. But now it was Nelson's turn to ask questions, and he began to do so very aggressively, starting with Tom's past. As Nelson approached, Tom glared at the attorney. They began to spar over each detail of Tom's testimony, one by one. First, Nelson tried to force Tom to admit that he had committed crimes in the past. Weren't you in jail in Oklahoma City on a charge of burglary, June 11th, 1929? Nelson asked. Tom Connor replied calmly, not that I know of. And then Tom sneered. Nelson snapped back, don't get smart with me. The crowd sitting in the spectator seating snickered. Why is it you could remember everything so well on Tuesday and can't remember when I ask you things? Nelson yelled. Tom shrugged. And then he denied there was any romantic relationship between he and Dorothy. He denied swimming with Dorothy that night and he absolutely denied killing her. Newton's attorney reminded the jury numerous times that Tom had once been held for Dorothy's murder too. Then the district attorney piped up that a grand jury had refused to indict Tom and indicted Newton instead. Tom again sneered at the defense attorney. Nelson demanded twice that Tom face the jury when he answered questions. Tom ignored the request until finally the district attorney ordered him to. Finally, Nelson was done questioning Tom Connor, and he left the courtroom. Would his testimony be enough to create reasonable doubt for the jurors? Three more witnesses took the stand that day to describe Dorothy's movements on the night she died. Two were her friends who confirmed Tom's story, but the third was a 21-year-old day laborer who knew Newton and Dorothy. J.B. Perkins testified that he watched Dorothy walk out of the post office and they chatted around nine o'clock that night. J.B. knew her because he had lived near her family. When they both said goodbye, he watched her walk toward a man across the street from the post office. Perkins said he was sure it was Newton. The defense objected, but it was too late. The jury heard that someone had placed Newton with Dorothy that night. Remember, Newton's mother said that he left her home after dinner around 7.30 p.m. and returned by 9.30. Now, J.B. Perkins said that Newton was downtown that night at 9.00 p.m. Could Newton really have killed Dorothy in just 30 minutes and then been home by 9.30? Was someone off with their time? Or was someone lying? Yes, it sounds like it because another witness who also knew Newton testified that he saw him with Dorothy that night. And then he saw Newton alone in the Blue Willow Cafe at 2 a.m. several hours later. He had his head on the table and he seemed very, very worried. As another dramatic day ended, Agnes Simons returned to her home on Commercial Street. As she prepared for bed that night, she worried. Tomorrow would be one of the hardest days of her life. The day she lost Dorothy was upsetting, but tomorrow she would face the defense attorney who had attacked Tom Connor. Agnes knew it wouldn't go well, and she was so right. On the third day of the trial, Agnes was dressed in black as she sat behind the prosecutor and waited. She was nervous. People who had been once friendly with her in town were avoiding her now. Her daughter-in-law, Helen Simon, says it was because of that trial, and Agnes had already felt insecure because she had lost her family money when she left her first husband, Dorothy's father. It sounds to me that Agnes had indicated when this trial was happening with Newton Yarbury that she felt like they were second-class citizens in Aranza's past. Did you get any kind of an impression from her about that, just about everything that was happening? I think it was like Agnes said. When you've had money and you no longer have it, you feel different about yourself, maybe, especially if people begin to kind of look down on you. The next day, the prosecutor, Gus Gale, called Agnes Simons to the stand. As Agnes sat down, she looked frail and wide-eyed and scared and very sad. The newspapers described her as haggard. When did you last see Dorothy alive? Asked the DA gently. On Thursday evening, July 30th, she came home and got ready to go to choir practice. She came in and kissed me and her daddy goodbye. That was the last time I ever saw of her. Agnes told the jury how wonderful Dorothy really was, how much kindness and love she showed her parents and her brothers. But Newton Yarbury was anything but kind, according to Agnes. One time he brought her home sick. They had been drinking wine at his house, and Dorothy didn't feel well. Agnes watched him toss her on the bed carelessly and walk out the door. She described Newton as jealous of other men, He hadn't been a good boyfriend recently. And this next part seems damning to me. Agnes told the DA that when she asked Newton about Dorothy's disappearance, he called it a fine mess. He said that if she were not found in six or seven days, that he would go hunting for her. What do you think of that statement? The prosecutor asked Agnes. She replied, I thought he's giving himself plenty of time. Agnes was shocked at how laissez-faire Newton seemed about his missing girlfriend and her daughter. That testimony was difficult, but it had gone well for Agnes. This next bit of testimony would not go so well. Newton's defense attorney, Mr. Nelson, stood up and walked over to her as the jury watched. First, he asked about Dorothy's religious habits. Did she go to church? Not often, she replied, even though Dorothy went to the Catholic Church for choir and classes. That wouldn't be well-received in a small town like Aranzas Pass. What about Dorothy? asked Nelson. What were her habits? Did she ever smoke cigarettes? Yes, sometimes, replied Agnes before the state could even object. The judge overruled that objection. Smoking cigarettes was apparently relevant in this murder trial. Gus Gale, the DA, sighed and replied to the judge, Very well, I want to put your honor on notice. We will introduce immaterial matter, too, and we'll try cigarette cases instead of murder cases. The judge didn't appreciate that remark at all and replied that both attorneys in this case would be given latitude. Nelson smirked and he turned back to Agnes. Did Dorothy ever drink alcohol? Yes, sometimes beer, replied Agnes. Just beer, not whiskey? Agnes took a moment and quietly replied, Sometimes whiskey, too. Nelson asked, Was Dorothy friends with that old woman? There was a woman in town who had a reputation for drinking and smoking and dating many men. Yes, replied Dorothy's mother. She didn't try to stop the friendship. Nelson sneered and glanced at the jury. Agnes's husband, Howard, was furious as he sat behind the DA. Gus Gale popped up and yelled to the judge that the defense was trying to impeach Agnes's testimony using innuendo. The judge ignored that complaint too. Then Nelson really went on the attack. He asked Agnes to explain why she had once filed a delinquency charge against Dorothy before she turned 18. Agnes thought a moment and she said, I just did it to get her back because she had run off. Agnes began to sob. Nelson looked at the jury again. He turned to Agnes and said, "'Didn't you row with Dorothy "'for having told the census taker "'you were eight or nine years older than your husband?'' The crowd snickered and Agnes blushed. Howard became more infuriated. Agnes replied, "'I romped on her a little.'" So Dorothy Simons wasn't so perfect, said Nelson. She had problems with her mother. She drank and smoked and flirted with men. She was friends with promiscuous women. Who knows who else she was with that night? Not Newton Yarbury, concluded the defense. Agnes Simons slowly left the witness stand and returned to her seat with her husband. She was utterly humiliated and horrified. She held Howard's hand until he pulled it away. Now it was his turn in the witness chair. Howard Simons was small, like his wife, but his voice was husky and it boomed like that of a much larger, more confident man. His small blue eyes were red from a lack of sleep. Howard braced himself. He had never been a perfect husband or even a perfect stepfather, but this might push him over the edge, and it did. Howard tried to stay calm. He spoke slowly and precisely. He explained that Dorothy left his house that night for the choir. The next time he saw her was in a grave on Redfish Bay. He hadn't been able to stop seeing the image of her bloated body. He had confronted Newton as soon as he realized that Dorothy was missing. Newton denied he had seen her. He had been home asleep. One last important point. The DA reminded the jury that Newton had scratches on his body, What kind of nails did Dorothy have? The DA asked Howard. Long, keen fingernails, he replied. The crowd erupted. But the judge stopped all that. What's surprising is the defense didn't attack Howard Simons on the stand. Mr. Nelson never asked Howard any offensive questions about himself or his stepdaughter. And we know why. Women are easier to confront and humiliate women who are alive and women who are dead. The next day, a sheriff's deputy detailed the state's physical evidence. There seemed to be two pairs of footprints on the beach belonging to a man and a woman. Two sets led to the water and only one set led away from the water. There were drops of blood in the sand. Newton's feet were cut by seashells and thorns. The defense questioned the deputy's experience in tracking footprints. And Mr. Nelson doubted that the deputy had actually seen blood on the beach. Are you sure? He asked. More reasonable doubt. The DA called two of Newton's friends to the stand. One said he thought Newton looked worried the morning before Dorothy was found. Newton had told friends that he was in trouble and that they would read about it soon. The friends were both asked about Newton's drinking habits. Yeah, they had gone out with him, but he wasn't a heavy drinker. The DA asked if they were heavy drinkers themselves. One of them said, no, I can drink 10 bottles of beer without getting lit up. That was the standard, I guess. So maybe Newton did drink a lot, and yet no one criticized him for it. They only judged Dorothy. A friend of Dorothy's said that Newton described himself to her as a dope fiend who would take his mind off of Dorothy's death by using drugs. Her friend Sally said, He said in a day or two, he'd have something to make him forget all about it. But Newton also told friends that he had a good alibi for that night, he was home asleep. The defense called character witnesses and all said Newton was a good man. Mr. Nelson insinuated that the witnesses who saw Newton that night all had bad eyesight. Plus it was at night. The defense said that there were gangs roaming around Corpus Christi not far from Aransas Pass Maybe they killed her. It's possible, considering her reputation, the defense said. After about a week of testimony, the judge gave his final instructions to the jury on October 13th. Now it was time for them to deliberate. The 12 men weighed all the evidence. There were physical marks on Newton The eyewitnesses put him where Dorothy was that night. He was jealous. It was undeniable that he was a drinker and he used drugs, and he had this unreliable alibi. And they recalled Dorothy's reputation also. According to the defense, she was a high-risk victim, and there were other suspects. Hours went by with many discussions and arguments over evidence. There was evidence that Newton killed her, But was it enough in a court of law to convict him? After 20 hours, the jury foreman approached the judge. He said, Judge, we stand 11 to one and don't seem to be able to agree. It was a hung jury. One holdout was preventing a unanimous verdict. The other 11 men agreed. Newton Yarberry was a killer. The judge pushed them to reconsider, but there was no convincing that one juror. He believed there wasn't enough evidence to convict Newton Yarbury. The judge had no choice, and he released the jury. Newton Yarbury had been in the Stinton Jail since his trial began, but on October 14, 1931, he was released, and Newton went home to Aransas Pass a free man. When Agnes Simons heard the news, she collapsed and she wept. Howard Simons fumed. There would have to be another trial, according to the district attorney. This would start all over again. I'm going to go ahead and shorthand what happened next. There was another trial that started about six weeks later. It was essentially a redo of the first trial. Same evidence, same witnesses, same reasonable doubt, different jury. But there was the same result yet again. A hung jury. This time, it was much closer, 7 to 5, to convict. Putting the victim's character on trial had been a very effective strategy, so the district attorney declined to demand a third trial. It was over. Newton Yarbury would not be charged again with killing Dorothy Simons. After five months of pain and two trials, Dorothy's parents were exhausted and disgusted, They were already tense and upset and not getting along before their daughter died, but the stress of the trials had damaged their marriage, which was already delicate to begin with. Agnes had been traumatized by being attacked on the stand. Her daughter was gone. Howard was sullen and angry. Their marriage was crumbling. And their boys didn't understand any of it. And soon, Joe and David would be ripped apart from each other. The story of Dorothy Simons and her murder has become family lore over the past century, even if it's not talked about much. They are all certain that Newton killed Dorothy, but why is the big question. J.B. Simons agrees with the state's theory about what happened between Dorothy and Newton Yarbury on the night she died, and it's really hard for him to describe.
1: I, d- I don't think that he realized what he had done until, he- until she died, she was dead. He just wanted to scare her because I'm bigger and stronger and smarter than you are and uh, you're going to do what I what I want and, uh, and that's just the way it's going to be. And uh, she basically told him to go flip sand and he flew into it. He just lost it. That someone said no to him and that just wasn't going to work.
0: Two trials and no convictions. It was difficult for Dorothy's family to accept, and many people in Aransas Pass also felt like that. Michael Strain's father, Bill, had investigated this case for years. I asked Michael how Bill viewed the outcome of Newton's two trials.
1: It wasn't like he ruled Yarberry out, but he was ne- never really convinced. Now, they almost convicted Yarberry the first trial. I think it was 11 to 1 in favor of conviction. But after that, the second trial, it was like almost split down the middle or whatever.
0: But Bill's knowledge of the outcome of the trials was limited because he died before he could explore those online newspaper databases.
1: We did have in there where my grandpa had testified. Which trial was this one? Was this the third trial in Beeville, or the second trial so in Beeville? So the
0: second trial, uh, and there wasn't a third trial. Did you see that? Uh, it never time? came. Yeah, they, they just had didn't planned when evidence. It never happened. Yeah. Yeah, there was a new DA, and they just didn't have no evidence. Yeah. and that was it. I asked Michael to read from his dad's blog about his obsession with this case.
1: Several times over the years, I found myself being drawn to the memories of the Dorothy Simons murder case. I was later drawn to the California Black Dahlia murder, which had elements of our Dorothy in it.
0: After the district attorney decided against trying Newton-Yarbury for a third time, the people of Aransas Pass seemed ready to move on. There seemed to be little pressure from the public on the DA to pursue the case, Dorothy Simons and the image of the young woman buried on Redfish Bay faded. But not with her family. It must have been so difficult for Dorothy's mother, Agnes, to feel that the community was siding with a suspected murderer over her grieving family, not to mention the anger and frustration she must have felt watching Newton go free. If she believed he were guilty, I wondered if she actually feared him or if she feared that he would turn violent again and harm someone else. We've talked about the possibility that Newton might've been abusive before Dorothy was killed. We've heard rumors that he might've acted aggressively toward her. And if he had, what if he had done that to other people, other women? Abusive behavior isn't just hurting someone physically. Defining domestic violence can be more complicated. I've spoken with Domestic Violence Court Judge Dimple Mahaltra about several different cases I've covered. First, starting with violence between young people, Mm -hmm. Um, is it more prevalent than what we see? I mean, do I need to be concerned about my daughter's hiding things from me? Do you see that in court at all? I do see a number of young people coming in and applying for protective orders. I do see a number of young people who are victims of domestic violence. And I don't know that it's more prevalent, I think, domestic violence is just prevalent. We don't talk about it with our young people. We don't educate them about red flags. What we don't realize is that batterers are able to obtain as much control in the relationship because they are able to manipulate and be charming and have this outward facade of this person who is calm and with it and together. Judge Mahaltrow brings up a good point. Signs of domestic violence can be very difficult to pinpoint. What might be happening in that relationship is that the victim is being isolated from her friends and family. She's being abused verbally and emotionally. This is dangerous, sometimes deadly behavior that can be so insidious, it's almost like it's hiding in plain sight. If only Dorothy had kept a diary or confided in someone who could speak about their conversations. As far as I can tell, only a few of her close friends had been witnesses at the trial— if Newton had abused her, maybe she confided in them or maybe she tried to hide signs of abuse like bruises so no one would know how threatening newton Yarberry really was. I certainly got the impression that Newton had an abusive personality. I wanna go back to Bill Strain at this point. I feel like I've learned a fair amount about him from all that he's written and from my excellent conversations with his son, Michael, and his wife, Sherry. Bill wrote something interesting in his blog. It's a clear reminder of how dedicated he was, how hard he worked voluntarily to solve Dorothy's murder. After my retirement, I began the job of researching Dorothy's murder and ran immediately into a blank wall. The county clerk adamantly refused to look for the trial transcript. My oldest son, Michael, and I planned a research trip to cover the areas of the Rio Grande Valley where he spent his public school years, and then on to Aransas Pass, where we found a gold mine of information with the people at the Aransas Pass Progress. After we returned, I felt like I had been fulfilled. I even think I felt Dorothy smile. Over the course of my investigation, this case continues to stand out as one of the most challenging I've ever covered. There are three main reasons for that. One is the convoluted murder mystery that still needs to be solved. We'll dig deep into that in our next episode. The second reason is the generational impact Dorothy's murder has had on so many people in the Simons family. I've been talking about that over the course of our entire season, and my final conclusion is going to include some big revelations. Another major concern that stuck with me from day one is an obsessive undertone that drives this whole investigation— It's impossible to ignore that Bill Strain was all but consumed by memories of Dorothy. Sherry Strain reflected on her husband's attachment.
1: He had a crush on Dorothy. She was uh, beautiful, and she spent time with him, and he was a four-year-old boy, and uh, she was wonderful. And then to just think about what happens when all of a sudden, yeah, she just yanked out of his life. And I'm sure that it was the topic of conversation. It was a very small town, and certainly nothing like that. Things like that don't happen regularly.
0: Michael Strain offered to read an excerpt of his father's blog.
1: In the not-too-distant future, there will be no one alive that even remembers Dorothy or Newton, and at that time, the inclination to do research will no doubt end. With the realization that my work was basically over, I found it difficult to continue the last segment of this story. It was almost as if I subconsciously wanted the project to continue, that somehow I would be a less vital entity when the project was over. I know the obsession has ended and so we wind down the story of a tragic waste of a beautiful life.
0: This line I think is so interesting. Somehow I would be a less vital entity When the project was over, what do you
1: think that is? As my dad was writing it up, I was thinking if a really good writer researched this and put it together, it could be a story for Texas Monthly or something, right? But the way my dad wrote it was more, it was a story about it, but a story about him and a story about the time. And it was kind of better that way. I think my dad was saying that while he was working on this and researching, he found it gave his life meaning in, in, in a way that he didn't fully understand. And that, you know, when it was time to wrap it up, that, there was a little grief involved in that, that somehow he would be less, have less purpose in life now that, that this is wrapped up.
0: Well, and he would be letting go of Dorothy also. Yeah, yeah. And that was probably pretty sad. Sure. I've spent a lot of time reading through Bill Strain's blog, looking for subtle information that might point to the killer's identity. Not that Bill knew the truth, but he must have felt that someone was guilty beyond all others. I asked Michael Strain to read one more interesting section aloud about Dorothy's younger brother, David. Okay, you want to start down at the bottom, David. With
1: okay. Room. David was the older of the two. He looked like Dorothy. He was small, brunette, and very active. I remember David saying, when I grow up, I'm gonna kill that Newton Yarberry because of what he did to my sister.
0: That's a bold statement and a direct threat. J.B. Simons isn't surprised at all to hear this about his uncle.
1: Well, David wanted to kill a lot of people, so that's not an uncommon comment from him.
0: Maybe David Simons was an angry man with a lot of grudges. But it sounded as if he were singling out Newton for murdering Dorothy and that he wanted revenge. But why was David so angry? Dorothy's family was traumatized by her death. And what happened to them in the 1930s was almost as tragic as Dorothy's murder. on the final episode of this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. If she heard someone putting Dorothy down, that would have been the bottom for her. He beat on her
1: too. She would beg him to stop, and it was like it was just water off his back. We thought he was gonna shoot her with a rifle. He had it out and was...
0: Did you get the impression that he felt like he made any headway on that case? I
1: didn't nose around much. As I think of it, he's always kind of had a little bit of a, a secretive side where I'm concerned, and I, I don't know why.
0: My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Laura Sobel, and Alexis Amorosi. Co-writers Laura Sobel and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can hear every episode one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.